Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Kevin Chapman. Kevin is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in anxiety and related disorders. He earned his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky in 2006, and is the founder and director of the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Kevin's anxiety work has gained significant media attention, where he regularly engages in public education through various media platforms, including Bloomberg Businessweek, USA Today, and many others. Additionally, Kevin has published numerous research articles focusing on anxiety in minority populations and serves on several editorial boards for scientific journals. Kevin and I had an in-depth conversation about all things social anxiety. Our talk reminded me of one of my favorite quotes on mental health, which is, the mind is a tool to be used, not a friend to be trusted. Kevin mentions that an overwhelming amount of negative thoughts that people experience related to social anxiety are not realistic, but distorted, and don't objectively represent reality. They are literally lies we tell ourselves, driven by fear. Consequently, the leading approach for addressing social anxiety involves disputing these thoughts and replacing them with more reasonable interpretations also known as cognitive behavioral therapy. I was also intrigued by Kevin's work with anxiety in minority populations and how these groups often have an added layer of complexity that can contribute to social anxiety. I really liked his approach of acknowledging unique experiences of marginalized groups, but also advocating for flexibility of thought as minority groups engage in social situations when their minority status is highlighted. If you're the type of person that experiences a lot of discomfort in social situations, you'll find this episode extremely useful. Enjoy. Okay, joining me today, uh, Dr. Kevin Chapman. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate uh, being on the show. Looking forward to it. Great. Um, so today we're going to be talking uh, uh, quite a bit about social anxiety. Uh, why don't you first start by uh, talking about some of the features of social anxiety and in particular, you know, some, something that I'm interested in is sort of how do you differentiate social anxiety from other terms that people might be familiar with, like just being shy or being introverted? Uh-huh. Well, Ryan, I like to tell people when we're talking about social anxiety, first and foremost, that social anxiety is a normal, I repeat, normal part of life. And it also explains why it's the most common anxiety disorder and the third most common disorder, period, because social anxiety is something that we all experience, first and foremost. So with that being said, I think ultimately, when we talk about the disorder of social anxiety, we're talking about a fear that is persistent. So a persistent fear of social and performance situations where negative evaluation may occur. So when I'm working with clients in particular, and just even talking to laypersons, I think it's really interesting because the reason that's so seductive is because 
literally any situation involving a human, negative evaluation is possible, right? It's not likely, right. but it's definitely possible. So when we talk about social anxiety disorder itself, it's a persistent fear of these social or negative evaluative type situations. Now, the difference between that and what we're shyness, also known as behavioral inhibition, also known as introversion, right, which is more personality trait stuff, we know that those are risk factors for developing social anxiety, but it's not the same as social anxiety. Part of it is the trait. It's I prefer, right, to be by myself at times and I don't want to necessarily be overwhelmed all the time with people, but it's not distress-based when I'm introverted, right? So in other words, Mm -hmm. it's not that I'm afraid to interact. It's that my preference tends to be you know, more solitary activity and whatnot, but that is a risk factor for sure for social anxiety disorder. So that that's interesting that you say that, that, uh, the, the idea that it's a preference might differentiate. Sometimes when I talk to people, they'll sort of craft a story that makes it seem like they prefer a certain way of being, but the reason mm-hmm. why they preferred in the first place is because yeah. of some sort of past experience. Like what comes to mind is like, sometimes I'll hear, uh, this is kind of, uh, I'll admit this is kind of a cynical view, but sometimes you'll hear women say, oh, I don't really like Valentine's day. I don't really mm-hmm. like all the attention. And right. sometimes, sometimes I, I think that's authentic, but sometimes I think y- you don't like that because you've had bad experiences with it. Whereas uh-huh. if you were with the right person and they, right cared for you and did something, then you would like it. So sure. um, is, does that factor in at all when you're trying to kind of uh, talk to introverts about how their views on social anxiety are? Yeah, indeed. And I think that if you think about what introversion is, it's really low extroversion, right? We have five personality traits in other podcasts, but one of the traits that's so important here that we're talking about is this idea of a continuum of extroversion on the, other, the low end of that is introversion. And if you define extroversion as this idea that I have a tendency to be talkative, warm, assertive, liking to be around people, and most importantly, I experience positive emotions, when you're low on extroversion, also known as introversion, you tend to have the opposite experience of that. So in many ways, one of the reasons that's a risk factor is because, yes, to your point, Ryan, I think what you're saying low key is that many times people can do subtle forms of avoidance and call it a preference when in reality, the reason they're avoiding is because they've had these negative or traumatic experiences, if you will, in social context. And if the stars aligned in a different way to your point, I think they wouldn't say that. So it's a way to kind of justify many cases, not all obviously, but many. So yes, I agree. I think that sometimes people might say, well, I don't really want to be in that situation. It's because sometimes, unfortunately, people have become accustomed to being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. And so but you are still saying that that for social anxiety to be, quote unquote, problematic, the the idea is that people want to interact with others Mm -hmm. and there's this thing that's stopping them. Right. Correct. Correct. And I think that the two main criteria for any, you know, mental health condition, including social anxiety disorder, number one is that do I have significant personal distress? Am I bothered by the level of discomfort that I have in social settings? It's a problem to me personally, right? And the second criteria, equally important, is that does this impair my functioning in any way? In other words, I prefer 
to want to interact with others. I want to pursue this job that I've been avoiding because I can't engage in public speaking or talk to the mm -hmm. CEO or CFO, right? So is it impairing my functioning in one or more areas? And if you think about those two criteria, simply put, that will kind of help us differentiate between normal levels of social anxiety versus more chronic levels. So if it's impairing my functioning in one or more areas and I'm personally bothered by the level of distress, that means that individual could use some assistance in some capacity. Now, could you paint a picture of the, the inner monologue of someone that might be experiencing really bad social anxiety? Um, uh, in, my, in my course, we talk a lot about sort of this idea of negative self-talk, which is all this you know, negative statements about oneself that are, whether they're exaggerated or catastrophizing, uh, it's a big part of, of social anxiety. Could you just paint a picture about what some of these thoughts are, the common ones that you've encountered? Yeah. So when people struggle with chronic social anxiety, the inner dialogue tends to be, again, the persistent fears about negative evaluation. So when you break down negative evaluation, that takes many different forms. So on the one hand, it's I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to do something humiliating. On the other hand, I'm going to do something that may be offensive to other people. So it's this idea that other people are more adequate in their social interactions than I am. And I'm going to do something that's going to mess things up in my social sphere, right? So in many ways, it's like saying, I have this idea. We, we talk about thinking errors often and people with social anxiety oftentimes engage in what we call fortune telling, right? They predict these negative outcomes in social settings. And they also simultaneously have what we call mind reading, this idea that I know that I'm gonna confirm these negative views that these people have about me. So it's this idea that I'm gonna do something foolish, to violate my social status. They won't like me. I'm going to look stupid. I'm going to stutter. I'm going to fumble my words and make a fool of myself. And it's going to lead to a negative social consequence. Now, if you had to characterize how often these thoughts are accurate versus just sort of uh, distortions, what, what, mm -hmm. ha what, what have you seen? The large majority, and if I had to give you just my Kevinese, so to speak, in terms of percentage, I would say, you know, 98% of the time, those thoughts are absolutely inaccurate. Um, in other words, you rarely, if ever, confirm that the automatic, negative, automatic thought that I have in those social situations is true, right? So this idea that I'm going to make a fool of myself. Well, what's the evidence that you're going to make a fool of yourself? Well, I'm going to turn, be anxious and people are going to laugh at me. Well, if we're going to base it on that concrete observation, what we find is no one laughs, right? But people with social anxiety, and again, Ryan, this might get into another kind of discussion, tend to have two biases. They learn to have what we call a threat bias, right? And they, and they also have what's called a memory bias. And the threat bias is I tend to learn subconsciously, of course, to pay attention to things that confirm my way of thinking. Here's a good example. You know, I'm giving a speech. And unbeknownst to me, even though this guy's in the front row looking at me with this scowl on his face, and I, you know, where I'm from, I'd say White Castles. So some people say crystals, I guess. But, you know, unbeknownst to me, this dude ate seven White Castles and he's having stomach problems, right? He's looking at me with this kind of resting face. But I only pay attention to him and conclude that my talk sucks when in reality, there's right. 90 people in the audience going, oh, wow, wow, this is amazing, taking notes and smiling, right? Yeah. So that's, a, that's what we call a threat bias. And then the 
memory bias is only paying attention to the times in the past when I did fumble the ball, but there's a thousand other times I didn't in the same context. So that's part of what perpetuates the cycle, right? When I have social anxiety is I only pay attention to the times that confirm that I messed things up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's interesting, sort of this idea that uh, it reminds me of the classic example, having taught at the college level, you mm-hmm. get your uh, evaluations back and they're 90%, 95% positive, but you don't really, a lot of us don't pay attention to the 95. We like that one student right. that was like, yep. I hated this class. Mm-hmm. It kind of, um, it, it kind of made me think that it, it, it goes back to your point about how social anxiety is, is generally speaking normal. Um, there, there might be some sort of evolutionary reason, you know, right. behind mm-hmm. focusing on a negative interaction. Right. So, sure. you know, you picture yourself interacting with, uh, with others in, in a pre-human context. <laughs> if you are liked by uh, 60, 80% of the tribe, it doesn't really matter if it's 60 or 80%, but if there's one person that doesn't yep. like you, right. that, you know, there could be serious consequences. It might be right. literally life and death. I wonder, mm-hmm. I wonder how that factors into that, uh, that attentional focus. I think that that's absolutely accurate, Ryan. And again, I'm just corroborating what you said, but it definitely has the evolutionary basis for us as humans, right? It's this idea that it's, absolutely adaptive and necessary for us to be accepted in our group, right? In our family of origin and whatnot. So it's also true for other disorders, right? Think about this idea that many people are hardwired and hypersensitive to heights, right? Or situations that involve snakes, right? These are all things that had this basis, you know, in times past that could in fact be dangerous to our existence. So social anxiety is the same thing. Why? Because if you get outcast, and scrutinized by your group of origin, you won't eat, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you could yeah. die, perhaps. Yeah, so, it's, yeah I, it's one of the re- reoccurring themes on the show, as well as in my the course that I teach, is uh, we're stuck with these instincts and mm-hmm. and and patterns of of thinking that served us really well, you know, millions of years ago, but right, right now, or, or hundreds of thousands of years ago. Uh, but there's there's all kinds of problems that we get with modern day society with all these hardwired instincts. Yep. Um, so let's jump to uh, child development. And mm-hmm. because I, I'm curious, is early exposure to social environments uh, the antidote for social anxiety? Right. I, I feel that now more than ever, we have parents that are uh, put safety above everything else. And they are keenly aware about putting, uh, avoiding putting their children in situations that might make them feel uncomfortable as a psychologist. That has to be terrifying because, you know, there's so much literature showing that if you move towards challenges towards things that, might be even slightly harmful, not, not things that are dangerous, but moving towards uncomfortable situations is the, is the magical solution. Um, so how do you feel about what role we can uh, impact social anxiety through development? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in many ways, Ryan, I won't say it's the antidote per se, 
<clears throat> but it certainly will help because the issue still remains that the stars have to align to develop social anxiety disorder anyway. So though being able to engage in more frequent social interaction is helpful and important and necessary. And one of the ingredients, I think you still have the issue of the rules of engagement need to still be taught, right? So in other words, though many parents, I work with a lot of clients who have social anxiety and they were plenty social. The problem though, is that in many ways, their parents said things to them, which is how anxiety tends to be transmitted from parent to child anyway, which was my research when I was a grad student and a professor actually, is the family transmission of anxiety. And that is how we communicate social situations and the rules of engagement. If I'm not telling you how to socialize, though I'm telling you to socialize, I'm teaching you that there must be something inherently <laughs> dangerous, right, about right. that. So if I have to defend for myself in these social settings, that's still problematic for a person who has, has a predisposition to be socially anxious to begin with. So I think you hear what I'm saying. In other words, I think that, yes, socializing frequently matters a lot, but the quality of it. And, and if I you're modeling, it, right? It sounds absolutely. like you're saying that, yeah, I, that's that's something that comes up a lot is uh, yeah, the, this, this old do as I say, not as I do, which is right. uh, which is not not the pathway to wiring your child to have effective social interactions. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, from a child development standpoint, it's the informational transmission and the caregiver parent modeling that's so incredibly important. The genetic part, and I know you know this, Ryan, but like the genetic part for the listeners, though, is not that I'm turning this anxious gene on per se that's transmitted. That's not the issue. It's more so the trait level stuff and the tendency to experience negative emotions. That's the gen genetic piece, right? And that lines up with the environmental learning experiences and voila, if the stars align a certain way then I can develop social anxiety disorder. Yeah, I I, I tend to be, I'll, I'll admit that I tend to be quite cynical about, about, about society dealing with social anxiety once people are already adults. It yeah. kind of, you know, the more I, I think about this path of, of you know, Inter, you know, more and more now I interact with with people that that express that they have social anxiety. And my first thought is always off. Oh, if, if, if we could have only addressed this at at, at adolescence or yeah. or even or even prior, just learning how to or, 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 you know, building situations where children approach things that make them somewhat uncomfortable. Um, but the cynicism still takes over. Do you do you do you share that sort of uh thought i mean i know as a as a clinician you, your mm -hmm. goal is to address problems yeah. in, the, in the present but do you sure. have that sort of feeling as well you know i don't honestly just because what i find is that there's a lot of moving parts that create this cascade effect of social anxiety disorder so for me you know you still have these semi somewhat traumatic experiences that people face that are in many ways unavoidable I mean, the stars literally have to align, right? So on the one hand, again, even if I do everything I can to get a kid socialized and communicate the right things, if they have the genetic predisposition and the wrong event happens, that can be powerful enough in many ways that the parent couldn't have, couldn't have even avoided for that particular person. Mm -hmm. The good news, though, to your point, Ryan, when this is where I'm very optimistic, is that we can reprogram that, though, right? <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. Good... Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm definitely saving the uh, the strategies for for dealing <laughs> with so social anxiety because I want to spend a a lot of time uh, talking about that. 
Um, <clears throat> before we, we get to that, um, I wanted to hear your take on, on how easy or how difficult it is to uh, uh, diagnose social anxiety or even for people to recognize they have social anxiety mm-hmm. because we have so many of these culturally accepted coping mechanisms to deal with anxiety that we feel in social settings, right? We Uh have alcohol, we have, uh, uh, I mean, marijuana is becoming far more socially acceptable. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to, uh, is this like, is social anxiety as a, as a phenomenon far more common than we realize because so many people just default to these, these uh substance uh coping mechanisms yeah so yes and yes so i think well no and yes i should say Mm -hmm. i think in many ways i think that social anxiety is relatively pretty straightforward to recognize because of the impact that it has on somebody's functioning right so i think that many people i mean we can definitely easily recognize it i don't think that's the issue at all i think though that to your point i think yes i think there's a lot of uh people who navigate situations and there's a lot of things and coping strategies that have become so socially acceptable that have created this again, cascade effect of social anxiety and a tipping point. COVID's a good example. I think in many ways, COVID allowed people to be more socially anxious because, you know, I've done a lot of media things on the impact masking has on people. Well, social anxiety and social interaction depends on verbal and nonverbal cues in many ways, right? So if I can't see your facial expression for somebody who's socially anxious, that's probably really helpful. Quote, unquote, albeit temporarily helpful. Because I've heard a lot of people say that, oh, now that I don't have to wear a mask in certain places and settings, I'm more anxious than I was before because I had a buffer or what we like to call a safety signal to protect me from being too anxious, right? Yes, alcohol is another example, masking the distress and the idea that I can't tolerate being uncomfortable. So you're absolutely right. I think that we don't see as much social anxiety manifesting because there's so many socially acceptable ways of masking it, no pun intended. But I think, though, that as we said earlier, since social anxiety disorder is the third most common mental health condition, you could see how so many people have it and why they have it. So... Could you talk a little bit more about that? The, the, so are we confident to say that the, the, the masking is preferred by people that experience high social anxiety? I mean, I, part of me thinks that part of me says that makes perfect sense. And then part of me is like, well, you know, isn't the, the whole idea that people are afraid of clowns is because they can't read their facial expressions. So, <laughs> uh, so now with everyone wearing masks, there's, heightened uncertainty. I can't, I don't know what people are thinking of me in any reaction, uh, which is it a little bit of both? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that it's absolutely true that people who have chronic social anxiety absolutely would prefer to wear a mask, like without a shadow of a doubt, because that's another layer of armor, so to speak, so that I can't make a fool of myself or you can't see my facial expression and judge me negatively. Again, social interaction involves nonverbal processing. I see what you feel based on what you, you know, the facial expressions and such that you make. I mean, that's pretty obvious in many ways, but I think that no, for certain, I don't know a socially anxious person I've ever worked with who would say, oh yeah, 
my preference is to not wear a mask because that way I'm putting myself out there and I can, you know, feel way worse. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, so a mask is definitely the preference in, in this yeah. day and age. <clears throat> yeah. And, and uh, it's, it seems to me as though this idea of having this, wearing a mask, making someone feel more comfortable with social anxiety. It's, it's, it seems very similar to the growth in online socialization mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, mm -hmm. and sort of, I mean, a, a cup, I think it was just before COVID, I realized that I have, I have friends that, mm -hmm. uh, that perhaps 90% plus of their social interaction takes place in a online gaming, in an online gaming setting. Yep. Um, uh, do you, do you think that, uh, well, put it this way, are there, what are the pros and cons of this cultural trend of, of, of outsourcing a lot of our social interaction to, uh, to online settings? Well, the con is that it's likened to having a sedentary lifestyle. If I was somebody who is a workout enthusiast. And then I start eating like chips and sitting on the couch a lot. And then I go out and try to run a marathon. That's not going to bode well for me, right? Because I'm out of practice. <laughs> right. 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 So, yeah. Yeah. So on the one hand, it prevents <clears throat> me from having the necessary social interactions in real time and in person that are important to really understand the entirety of a social context. Um, so there's the con is that it gives it takes away my practice in real life. Pro is that if it's used correctly, is that it is a setting that is relatively contrived where I can test out social skills and maybe even enhance them with people who may not judge me negatively, right? So I can kind of pick and choose my community and kind of have a predictive validity of people that I interact with. Now, the other, on the other hand, that can also negatively reinforce, <laughs> reinforce this idea that I am looking foolish or that people yeah. will scrutinize me and people, because again, with the anonymity of online interactions, people say what the heck they want to say to you. And there's not much you can do about it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I can say this because I don't have clients, uh, but I, you know, I'm not necessarily a, a big fan of gaming culture. I don't, I don't really play online games uh mm -hmm. I, you know played mm -hmm. in nintendo when i was a kid but that was you, <laughs> you had to be you had to be in the same same room with, with totally understand people. so yep. um so if you have a client who is expresses to you that they have uh distress they have social they have a lot of distress around interacting with people in public in person yep. but their but their interaction but their interaction with their friends via their headset while they're playing a game seems yep. to be uh, healthy, right? What, yeah. what, do, what do you do with that? Well, I would, well, it depends. So if, if you're saying that I have a client who does that, it seems healthy, I think you said, but yet they're avoiding other interactions outside of the game world. Well, I'll tell you now, Ryan, I'm pretty black and white about exposure when it comes to that sort of thing in terms of like what I would get a client who has social anxiety to do I would definitely use that as an opportunity to build, have the building blocks to use in real time social interactions. I would never with like no exception whatsoever, allow a client to only interact that way if they're coming to see me for social anxiety treatment. I definitely would use that as, a, as an impetus 
for them to communicate effectively with others in person. In other words, I wouldn't let that slide. I wouldn't just say, well, that's a good thing. I'm glad you do that. Keep doing that only because that's not going to generalize other situations. They got to still confront situations that involve people in real life. Yeah, I I wanted to ask that because it, it just feels <laughs> it, it, it yeah. feels as though um, yeah. in a very subtle way, we're normalizing things that Correct. perhaps shouldn't be normalized. And yep. I really, really try to um, to kind of understand the positive aspects of having lots of this online communication. I mean, you know, it's obviously like um, verbally, you know, communicating with the headset is better than just typing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Even seeing yep. the people might be seeing other people on a video screen is a little bit better than that. But yep. I haven't I haven't quite kind of settled on on what the solution is to to this growing trend of 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 online communication. Totally agree with you. We're on the same page. And as you know, you haven't gotten into this yet. But, you know, we're a CBT on my face, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And you'll find that, you know, people who engage people who have social anxiety will agree with the exact same thing I just said. And that is there are no exceptions if you're coming to see some one of us for treatment of some sort, now, you know, we're going to do it in an encouraging way, but it is absolutely essential that you confront any and all social interactions. And that includes being in person. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> now uh, you have done some work looking at racial or ethnic differences in the experience of social anxiety. Um could you talk about uh, the extent to which there are f- maybe fundamental differences between um, between races in terms of how they experience social anxiety? Yeah, so you know that's that's always a great loaded question, Ryan. In many ways, because you know I think the short answer is that the rates of social anxiety are similar in what we call BIPOC, right, which is Black Indigenous people of color. Tend to, tends to be what we say to include, you know, not only African-American folks, people of African descent, but other people of color as well. Uh, and their general shared experiences, right? Because there's variation, of course. But with that being said, as a group, like people of color in the country, we tend to experience the same rates in terms of social anxiety. The caveat, though, from a cultural standpoint, is that what we often argue, though, too, is that there's a lot of factors that contribute to social anxiety in people of color that are oftentimes missed. So example, we talk about things like microaggressions, you know, having these covert forms of racism that take place and also the advent of social media and seeing traumatic experiences online and in social media with people of color, you know, get murdered and whatnot. I think it's important to note that in many ways it's somewhat adaptive, right? for me to be anxious about, say, being the only African-American in a setting that is, you know, predominantly white, for example. And that's not pathological yet. That's social anxiety, right? So I think one of the things we talk about culturally is this idea of true alarms and false alarms. When we talk about disorders, we oftentimes talk about true alarms. A true alarm is referring to actual, actual danger. If I'm in a fire and I have the fear response that's a true alarm, right? If there's an active shooter and I'm there, that's a true alarm. These are actual traumatic experiences. A false alarm is essentially having the fear response or panic, if you will, 
without a dangerous scenario. In other words, I'm having a panic attack when there's no threat per se. That's what we call a false alarm. And what we often talk about with social anxiety, especially in BIPOC, is this idea that we have a number of alarms that take place that are cultural in nature, like driving while black is an example, right? Like, is that inherently threatening? Well, it may be, it may not be. The key though, is that there's reasons why I'd have the same reaction while driving that say my non-Hispanic white friends or colleagues would not have because they don't have the same cultural experiences I do. So I think that what that really speaks to is just being culturally proficient and understanding that there is a cultural lens through which to view these symptoms. On the one hand, there's social anxiety proper, but on the other hand, it's understanding cultural variables and how those contribute to the difference in experiences with people of color versus white folks. So you mentioned this idea of, of microaggressions and uh, sort of sifting between false alarms and true alarms, um, which it, it, it can be very difficult to, to do that, right? Because it yeah. involves, it involves kind of, uh, this theory of mind. You have to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Like what are, <laughs> what are they, yeah. uh, did they mean something different? It's sort of this like really complex right. social dance that you have to walk through. Uh, I'm wondering what are the types of things that you, uh, that what, what are the types of things that you would tell someone that was having trouble kind of, uh, you know, navigating those social waters? Well, um, and you mean the person of color themselves? Or you're yes. saying like yeah. the clinician? Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's a good question. I think that, uh, well, first and foremost, I think it's essential to normalize their experience. I think in many ways we have a tendency to pathologize things based on diagnostic criteria and whatnot, another conversation. But the relevant part of it it's this idea of normalizing their experience. Their experience is their experience. It's not bad and it's not wrong. Secondly, which is a very important point, when we start talking about ways of thinking, especially when we get into things that are helpful for social anxiety, like cognitive restructuring and things along those lines, cognitive strategies, I think it's important to not pathologize the thought process related to that either. In other words, I often find it more helpful to refrain from saying, all right, let's do cognitive restructuring and change the way you think about it. I opt more for let's be flexible in how we think about it. Interesting. So there, there may or may not be a scenario that is safe or dangerous. The key is not allowing it to dictate my experience. And I collect data by being flexible. It is possible that this situation is dangerous, but can I tolerate being uncomfortable? Yeah. Can I tolerate the <laughs> idea that I can go to this situation and potentially have a good experience. So it still requires the data collection, but it's way less stigmatizing to say, yes, first of all, it's normal to feel that way because of cultural experience. Second of all, let's be flexible, meaning let's generate different possibilities as opposed to change the way you're thinking about, oh, that's not dangerous, it's safe. Yeah. Who am I yeah. to say that, right? Like, because yeah. that's gonna be, <laughs> so. Well, yeah, and it's, yeah, and it's, 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 um, it's unfortunate that our, the, the amount of polarization that is happening in the political landscape kind of creates this chasm between groups and these extreme ideologies that make it hard to leave room for nuance. Because I think what you're saying is like flexibility, that's it. Flexibility in thinking is a nuanced idea, right? Mm -hmm. By definition, you're mm -hmm. saying flexible. Um, mm -hmm. But 
you know, certain parts of the population end up denying realities of of certain minority groups uh, in social psychology, it'd be called, you know, stereotype threat. So for the listeners, yep. right, yep, stereotype yep. threat is this idea that you experience a threat when a stereotype, a negative stereotype about your group is activated. So the, yep. you know, one of the, one of the more classic examples, not related to race is if you're a female and you're asked to do uh, a math problem or something in a more public setting, you mm -hmm. have, two layers of anxiety that could be activated. One is your, your ability to do math. And then the other is, oh, there is a stereotype that women are bad at math, which will add on more anxiety. And yep. these are, you know, stereotype threat. There's a lot of, for the listeners, there's a, a ton of research on this. And, yep. and to your point, it's important to kind of acknowledge, acknowledge reality and then and then address it in a, in a, in a flexible way. Right. Yeah. That's a great point, Ryan. And that's where we talk about um, for non-Hispanic white clinicians in particular, that's why cultural humility is so important because in many ways, if you have a person of color as a client that you're seeing and you just presume, well, wait a second, the way you're thinking about the situation is inaccurate. <laughs> that could be super offensive because you're not taking the perspective of that person and their experiences. Stereotype threat's a big one, right? Like one I talk about a lot when I used to teach and such is talking about, you know, being one of the few people of color in a setting on a tour. I mean, there's a lot of subtle examples. And then the tour guide pays an inordinate amount of attention to you with head nods and such, which seems <laughs> innocuous, but that's super awkward, right? So like, there's a whole lot of examples yeah. of stereotype threat where you got to represent, which is a statement uh -huh. we often make in African-American <laughs> culture, <laughs> Is making sure that I'm not confirming stereotypes when I'm in and when I'm interacting with predominantly white individuals in various settings, whether that be work workshops or you know a part of town or whatever it may be. We want to make sure that you know we're uh, not confirming stereotypes, which creates anxiety, right? The idea that I could. right, right. So let's uh, let's jump into the uh, solutions or the strategies and treatments that are uh, typically used to address social anxiety. Um, you've already mentioned CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, cognitive behavioral ther therapy, right, targets these cognitions that might be somewhat inaccurate or distorted. Um, what, what are uh, the ways in which you use CBT to, uh, to help people filter these negative thoughts that they might have about social uh, situations. Yeah. And just to plug CBT, Ryan, I'll be clear. Um, you know, when I'm often doing media and such, people ask me questions about a lot of other schools of thoughts and such, but I just want to be clear that cognitive behavioral therapy, not only is what I ascribe to, but it is the absolute gold standard treatment for social anxiety, meaning it's the best available, right? So I just want to be clear with listeners that CBT is going to have the best empirical support and evidence base for treating social anxiety, like without a shadow of a doubt. So with that being said, mm -hmm. um, the ingredients of CBT, I'll give you three main ones. First and foremost, it's important to understand that psychoeducation is essential for social anxiety treatment. So the client is learning to become their own psychologist, if you will, and teaching them where social anxiety came from, what the components of social anxiety are, and understanding the various mechanisms within social anxiety is part of the foundation of CBT. 
teaching you these are where the symptoms came from. This is what essentially maintains them and whatnot. Psychoeducation is very important. Once you go beyond psychoeducation, you collaboratively make a list of situations that trigger that social anxiety, which is very important. Historically, we call that a hierarchy where you rank order situations from most stressing and avoided to least distressing and avoided and essentially come up with a teamwork game plan to confront and counter all of those situations. So the two main ingredients of CBT for social anxiety include what you already referenced. Number one, cognitive restructuring. So teaching individuals, it's not the event themselves that cause social anxiety. It's our interpretation of those events that create the social anxiety is a very powerful mainstay of CBT. So in other words, I'm not being a victim to my environment per se, because the event's not causing the anxiety, though there's a learned association that's developed based upon my emotional experience in that situation. So CBT teaches, how can we test out thoughts and treat them? Here's kind of my tagline, Ryan, drum roll. Mm -hmm. How do I learn to treat my thoughts like hypotheses rather than facts? Right. That's a very important right. concept. So can I test these thoughts out and like a scientist, collect data, if you will, to challenge those thoughts and disconfirm them. So cognitive restructuring is a very important ingredient of social anxiety treatment since the thoughts I have about social situations is essentially what creates the anxiety and maintains it. And yeah, then I, this, I, I, I've also, I, I really like this idea quite a bit. I've heard, um, uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky on some of his podcasts, he'll, mm -hmm. uh, he likes to call it, um, in, in sort of a different context, not necessarily social anxiety, but he calls it wonderment, practicing mm -hmm. wonderment. Like I wonder, uh, you know, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. I wonder if this habit is serving you. And right. it seems like there's, there's a lot of value in taking that into the social environment as well. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, I wonder if, if I'm able to, um, to go 15 minutes in a public place. And I wonder if I'm able to start a conversation with a stranger. And, right. <clears throat> right. No, that's a great point. No, yeah. Right. So being very inquisitive and there's a number of semantics we could use to, to really get people to test out these hypotheses. We use what's called disputing questions to that are objective empirical questions to get us to challenge those thoughts. Like my favorite would be, you know, Oh, I'm going to make a fool of myself. Right. And then the question is rather than spoon feeding the client, the answer to that question, which most people would do mm -hmm. is to simply say, well, what's the evidence as I scratch my head awkwardly and look away as if I don't know the answer to this rhetorical question, but what's the evidence that you're going to make a fool of yourself, right? Well, I'm going to, uh, I've been anxious every time I enter that situation. And then I could say, okay, so does you being anxious each time you enter that situation mean you're going to make a fool of yourself question mark? Yeah. No, but I feel like I am. Okay. So you're saying this <laughs> negative prediction is being driven by how you're feeling. I guess so. Okay. Are you 100% sure mm. you're going to make a fool of yourself? Not necessarily. Okay. So what's happened in the past? What you mean, doc? Well, what I mean by that is, well, what's happened the last time you felt that way in that situation? How did it go? And then they're usually like, oh, I kind of killed it. Say that again. I didn't hear you correctly. And then you kind of joke oh. about it because oh, you, you realize- well, <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's the so that's a very important ingredient. But the other ingredient that is arguably more important is exposure and exposure means confronting the social situations that trigger the social anxiety until you learn a new non threatening association. In other words, these situations take on 
two different meanings. On the one hand, you have this learned fear association of, oh no, this is horrible. I don't like the way this feels where your amygdala is activated and whatnot. But then you have this other corrective experience where it's like, oh, I actually killed it or I actually did well. People actually didn't laugh at me and oh, I'm not as anxious. So ultimately, the more you confront those situations and vary the context in which they occur, the less anxious you become. And now I'm mastering my social anxiety. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I love I love to hear like a, a nice uh, application of <laughs> of cognitive behavioral <laughs> therapy. Um, yeah, yeah. The uh, now. How does uh, how do you deal with this this idea of mindfulness? Right, uh, it's becoming increasing increasingly popular to to incorporate sort of mindfulness based meditations or or other ways of practicing mindfulness into yeah. uh, 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 mental health. Um, there's yeah. a lot of overlap between the kind of mental processing that kind of happens in CBT and mindfulness. Do you yeah. see mindfulness as a, as a, as an important piece of the puzzle? Yeah. So when I'm working with socially anxious clients, depending on the client, right, it's very idiosyncratic in that regard. You know, I may incorporate mindfulness, but just to be clear about mindfulness, Ryan, I 100% agree with the notion that mindfulness is a mainstay as well. And a very important wave, if you will, of integrating CBT into regulating emotions, period. So though we're talking about social anxiety, a very important component of mindfulness, which simply means to be mindful or presently aware of what's happening right now and being aware of my emotional experiences is that we know, again, this is a different discussion, but I think it's relevant that neuroticism, which is a trait, the tendency to experience negative emotions coupled with the perception that the world around me is threatening and that I'm ill-equipped to cope with it is literally the main risk factor for all emotional disorders, including social anxiety. So when we know that the perception that emotions are negative, so if I have anxiety, I got to try to get rid of it. But anytime I try to get rid of it, it backfires and makes me more anxious. That will mean then that being mindful is an important ingredient to infuse and integrate into treatment. In other words, yeah. I have to learn how to be presently focused on my emotions, including anxiety as they happen. But here's the most important part, Ryan. I have to be non-judgmental about that emotional experience, meaning right. anxiety is normal. Anxiety is harmless. Yes, I see you, anxiety. You're not threatening, though. You're trying to communicate important information about the future. How do I respond to you adaptively? So it's very important. Now, I I, I, t I tend to agree that that these types of of sort of cognitive treatments um, are are definitely the gold standard. Uh, but I am curious as to how medication fits in, uh, because you know sometimes. Uh, if you if you're social if you experience a lot of social anxiety it can kind of lead to isolation it can lead to depression mm -hmm. and i've talked to enough people and sort of you know uh what i would say you know had conversations where it seems as though there there is a lot of pushback on the cognitive elements, right? There's sort of cycling of, of, uh, of negative thoughts that, I mean, th they should be worked out in therapy. It's not like I'm doing therapy on them, but you see that the, that the negative thoughts can be a huge wall, uh, yeah. towards, towards cognitive growth. Um, sure. is medication, uh, something that, 
that uh, is, is a vital piece of the puzzle at some point and under certain circumstances? I think the latter phrase is the most important, and that's under certain circumstances. Okay. I think okay. that SSRI medications, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, tend to be the most heavily prescribed for anxiety and related disorders, and they definitely work in concert with CBT. Very effective in many people because what that medication class does is that it essentially dampens, if you will, a lot of the negative affect or strong emotional experience that that person may be having. And for many people, as you know, Ryan, social anxiety and depression and anxiety disorders and, and depression in particular mm -hmm. co-occur. So if I'm super depressed and I'm anxious, those medications can be very important and helpful in helping that individual mollify their symptoms, if you will, so that they can be attentive to the cognitive restructuring and the exposure-based treatments that you have. So medication, just to be clear, is not this either or, right? It's a, it's a if-win. <laughs> so yeah. like in many ways, some people need the medication in order to especially dampen the symptoms of depression because depression can be a significant hindrance to treating anxiety if it's not effectively dealt with. But then there's other people who, you know, have more milder forms of depression or not even depressed at all, who based upon just verbal ability and whatnot, won't need it at all. And where CBT is going to be, you know, the mainstay right. for them. So it just depends on the client that you're seeing. And uh, we have a psychiatric nurse practitioner in our practice, actually, for that mm -hmm. very purpose, because she's a CBT first prescriber, though. In other words, right. she's only prescribing to people who are being seen for CBT, if that tells you the utility of that and where it can be very helpful and in concert with medication. Okay, so uh, we'll end on on a, a, a much more broad question. Um, suppose that you are just experiencing an average amount of social anxiety. Uh -huh. um, I, I would you wouldn't call it clinical. It's just sometimes I experience social anxiety and, and it causes me to avoid social situations um, outside of a therapeutic setting and getting uh, CBT from a professional what would you recommend people do when they start noticing these feelings? What are some practical things that people that experience social anxiety can do to help overcome it? Well, I think in many ways, you know, I get that question a lot, Ryan, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. because what you just ask is again, well, how we started the, the podcast and that is mm -hmm. social anxiety is a normal part of life. So if you find to the listeners that you're struggling with anxiety more than you'd like, then that means that any of the strategies we're talking about employing will be effective for you. So number one, you got to have a practical game plan. So first and foremost, I'd say identify on paper, on paper, on paper, because it forces you to be objective, meaning you're stepping outside of your head and looking at it like an outsider. Write down the situations where you get socially anxious. I think that's very important to lay out what are the situations that trigger me. Number one, that gives you a sense of mastery and control to do that. Number two, I'd identify and collect data like a good scientist would on what are the thoughts I have? What's the theme of the thoughts that I have when I encounter said social situation? So let's say it's a work meeting that you often have. Well, if the work meeting is the problem, hypothetically, you might find that the theme is something like, oh, no, what if they call on me and I don't know what to say? That's pretty common for social anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if you develop that theme, right, fortune telling again right? I won't know what to say. Then I think it's important to notice the thought is what's leading to the anxiety itself. Once you identify the thought, 
I would tuck away a few of those disputing questions that I asked earlier on the podcast. Number one, what's the evidence that fill in the blank? Am I 100% sure that fill in the blank, right? What's happened in the past, fill in the blank. And once you answer those questions, number four, I think, right, I'm on. <laughs> and what you would do is once you've challenged those thoughts, replace those thoughts with what I like to call a rational response. What's a thought that is short, neutral, or somewhat positive and true? Short, neutral, or somewhat positive and true that I can say to myself when I go in that situation like a boss mm -hmm. and do what I need to do. An example, right? I'm capable and I'm prepared. Notice the criteria. It's short. It's actually somewhat positive and it's true. Why? Because I know the job, right? Mm -hmm. So I would encourage you to identify the situations where the social anxiety occurs, check mark, but identify the thoughts and the theme therein that I have in those social situations, check mark. Then I'd use those disputing questions to challenge those thoughts, mm -hmm. right? Check mark. And then I'd come up with a rational response that I tattoo in my brain before, during, and after the encounter. Hopefully that's practical enough. Yeah, definitely. It's a, a, some at-home at home CBT. Hopefully, uh, yeah, th that's definitely something that I hope that I hope the, the public starts to become more and more familiar with something that they can practice at home uh, and, and uh, address uh, fears, uh, anxieties and stuff like that so that they don't, they don't have to get to the point where they have to go see um, a, a, a clinician. Not that that's a bad thing, but <laughs> um, <Right>. so, <laughs> so uh, thank you so much. Uh, we are out of time. Uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on to talk about social anxieties. Very excited to, to go through this. Um, uh, Dr. Kevin Chapman, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. On Kevin, visit drkevinchapman.com or visit the website for the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders at kycards.com. Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on iTunes. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. And as always, feel free to email me at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? Mm -hmm.